0: Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Maria Media and Markets on YouTube as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss Christine, great to be able to catch up with you and get your thoughts uh, on the market always. Um, you know, It's an interesting time, that's for sure, in terms of where we go from here at high valuations. Huge debates right now in terms of uh, whether or not inflation is here to stay or if it's transitory. And if it is transitory, what in the world does that even mean? Uh, and all of this has an impact um, on, our, on our stocks, on valuations, on what sectors and mm-hmm. exposure you want. And even for people who are just kind of really getting to learn about the investment industry, you know, they need to know that the rate that they pay on their credit card, their auto, their mortgage rates, whatever, everything is going to be affected by really the interest rate environment. Um, and that's why it's talked about so much. Sure. I don't, I don't remember us ever talking about it this much. So, but this is this is front and yeah. center. So, why why don't we uh, why don't we get your perspective in terms of where you stand, uh, running the company, running your investment firm?
1: Sure. Well, definitely, Catherine. You're right. Because inflation for the last 20 years has been like around 2%. And it's been actually, the central banks have been trying to get inflation up. And now, since the spring, it has spiked up to, well, over 5% in the core, the last latest reading, the core uh, CPI in Canada was 4%. So we've had this spike up. Um, I am in a camp that it's transitory or not permanent. Um, I think that it may stay with us longer than maybe what the Fed initially expected when they, you know, when it it started to spike up in February, because of all these bottlenecks and shortages that we're reading about, and it's all that I think going to come down to when we can get the um, COVID-19 the virus, um, everyone getting vaccinated, because we also forget that the global economy is so interconnected. Yes, in Canada, our vaccination is very high, over 70% fully vaccinated, but you have other parts in the world where it's still single digit and a lot of goods that are made and shipped come from those countries. And so that's causing a lot of balls because if it breaks out, they have to shut down. So it's going to take some time. I know the World Health Organization, they're targeting to get the global population vaccinated um, 70% by next September. Now, that, is it going to take that long for I think to get sorted out? I Hopefully not. But I think for stock markets, it's not, uh, it's kind of old news now. We're hearing it, like you say, inflation, higher interest rates. So the uh, The market is expecting when companies report this coming quarter, they're going to be talking about inflation and high elevated transportation costs. But it's going to be more the commentary of looking forward. Are things getting better? The rate of change. And I think that will be supportive for markets if it is slowly improving.
0: So the rate of change and slowly improving, that that sounds like that's your stance, that you believe that that is what is occurring. But there's also big debate Mm -hmm. around whether or not that is occurring in the sense that, um, you know, we saw weaker than expected economic data out of China. Um, you are seeing yes. some of the, and you have yeah. to think about some of the small cap companies in the United States that won't be able to uh, handle and manage these higher costs and the bottlenecks. It won't, it just won't work for their businesses. Yeah. So, you know, and then we've got the US Federal Reserve and their GDP expectations and their inflation expectations. I mean, yeah. What do you are what what are we in right now in terms of the growth outlook? Because that's also key as well in terms of whether or not we can grow into these valuations.
1: You know, you're correct. And like we do know, GDP estimates in the last few months have been revised down. I mean, they're still growing above trend, but I think it's more of a uh, an issue that the recovery it's still ongoing. But the, um, the pace of the recovery has been delayed because of Delta variance and these issues. But it's going to still improve. And so I think we've seen GDP estimates being revised down for this year. But in some cases, economists have revised it slightly upwards for next year, saying that, you know, this is going to be pushed out. I mean, the one plus you can take away from this, Catherine, is the demand seems to be there, right? When the economy is reopened in the U.S. and seeing in Canada, People want to buy. There's a demand for goods, which is, which is causing um, this kind of imbalance between demand and supply. I think people would be more, even more discouraging if there was no demand for anything. And and then that the economy kind of just stops. But the, the demand seems to be there. Prices are going up temporarily. And you're, you made a good point about um, larger companies maybe benefiting, because we know that larger companies such as Costco and Home Depot, they're, they're you know, contract their own ships and getting into other ports to get goods in. So the profit outlook is very important because um, I think that's what's driven the markets up this year. If you look at the valuation multiples, um, what they, where there's even on 2021 earnings for the broad indices, we're, we're the same multiple that we were at the beginning of the year, but the market's up only 20%. So to me, it's been earnings, um, positive earnings revisions that have driven this market up. Going forward, I think it's gonna remain important um, We'll have to see what companies are saying this, this upcoming earnings season. But we are also seeing companies invest in technology, technology spending and capital spending was up very uh, you know, strong last year. And people, and I think companies are using technology to try to offset some of these pre- uh, cost pressures. And so that's gonna be a fine balance. Um, but I do agree that, you know, continue profit growth is important. And so far, it actually, it hasn't been so bad. They're very early on in the earnings season. We've had the banks report, as you know, and they still see that we're on an upward uh, path to recovery, but it may be delayed because of these issues. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, let, let me, since we briefly are mentioning earnings, what, what is your overall take on the earnings season so far? And also the banks and just some of the huge beats in particular of Goldman Sachs as an mm-hmm. example and, and, um, you know, whether or not you see that continuing. Well, Goldman Sachs and the capital market
1: activity has been very strong. That's helped all the banks. I I think for the um, more kind of consumer and commercial oriented banks, the key metric has been loan growth because that's been an issue that uh, everyone's saving. The banks have so much deposits in their bank accounts, but they're trying to utilize that cash in terms of loan growth. Yes, mortgages are growing and we're starting to see a slow pickup. Which is a, which is good. Um, companies have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. They went last year. A lot of companies raised um, money just because so they could have it in case I don't know for emergency because so they didn't know what the outlook was going to be. And also, as we know, the, um, the revisions have been they've been releasing those as the been improving. All the banks, U.S., Canadian. Put up a lot of provisions last year. The U.S. banks are probably ahead of the Canadian banks in terms of releasing those provisions. You don't get full credit by the market when they see those provisions come, you know, released. But it's it's still a positive. It's going to help their bottom line, and they're still going to grow their book value, which means that you know, price to book value is an important metric for banks. So that that becomes more attractive. So. Um, I, I like the banks, generally speaking. I think they've shown that um, they're like, diversified in terms of their business mix, capital markets, wealth management, and um, they have a lot of capital on their balance sheet. And as you know, Catherine, in Canada, um, these banks have been building up because they haven't been able to increase their dividends or do uh, share buybacks. And so there's, there's still, that, still that catalyst to come.
0: So when you talk about the banks, though, um, do you like both Canadian and U.S. banks or are you favoring one more so than the other?
1: Uh, I like the banking group as a whole, uh, and we do have investments on both sides. But I think right now the Canadian banks, even though they have done well, they have lagged the the U.S. banks and um, arguably, this, rec- and if you take a step back, I mean, once again, the provisioning, the, the releasing those revisions has lagged. So maybe that's one of the reasons. But as well, you look at the jobs number that was released last week, the Canadian economy has actually bounced back quite nicely in terms of employment because we're back to pre pandemic levels where the U.S. is still underwater by whatever five, six million jobs. So it could be because we uh, our vaccination rates are so much higher than the U.S. in terms of fully vaccinated that. Maybe in the long run, that's going to be beneficial for the, for the our economy. So, you know, and I think banks, the banking sector reflects the health of the economy. So, you know, as we get those positive um, economic data, that means that 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 kind of feeds into their provisioning and how much they can release. So, that's going to be beneficial for the Canadian banks. So, because of the I guess the relative underperform between Canadian and U.S. banks right now, I do I would favor the Canadian banks over the U.S. banks.
0: Hmm. Just from a relative underperformance perspective and maybe a bit of a catch-up trade?
1: Yeah. Okay. Correct. And the valuations, I think the valuation gap is a bit wider um, still between the two. And, you know, for ourselves, you know, we consider Canadian banks as income stocks. And so we think their yields, um, especially non-registered accounts, much more attractive if you get the dividend tax credit. So, you know, it's much more beneficial tax-wise actually to own Canadian bank and collect that dividend with the dividend tax credit.
0: What's the top Canadian bank for you, then, since we're on
1: it? Since we're on it? Well, uh, Royal and TD are are our top favorites. And I would think probably more so uh, if I had to choose between the two, TD, because it has um, lagged somewhat in terms of uh, over Royal and the overall group. And I think TD, they do have uh, very good exposure to the U.S. economy as well. So you get a more geographical um, mix there. And they yeah. have a lot of capital. They're the best, but most, I guess, capitalized bank of all of the chain banks. And they also have that interest in Schwab, which they can't redeploy if they want to make an acquisition to grow. Um, I, don't, I think they're gonna be very disciplined in what they buy, but also that's another alternative source of capital if they come across something.
0: Okay. And just again, from a top-down perspective, um, you know, we talked about yeah. the economic growth outlook. Let's, let's just dig into China a little bit because a couple of weeks ago, there sure. you know, really was a bit of a scare, maybe not too much of a scare with respect to the Evergrande property developers and, and yeah. whether or not there's more of that to come and what that might mean for global growth. And in particular, some of the cyclical areas of the market, you know if China is in fact slowing or they have mm-hmm. a bigger problem and can't ring fence it, um, what might that mean for you know, some of the metals and miners, copper, et cetera? I, I, I mean, yeah. nobody seems to about that today, uh, but what do you think?
1: No, well, I obviously China with their common prosperity platform, it's impacting a lot of sectors. We saw that in technology, uh, in their whatever tutoring sector, where they decided you can't make any money there and no longer, and that wiped up a whole sector. And with um, Evergrande, you're right that um, if property development slows, uh, which may materialize out of all of this then demand for those commodities such as steel, things that are used to to build uh, bridges and buildings, that may dampen demand. And so that will have an impact. Uh, personally we don't actually we don't right, we're not in that sector. Um the, the, the base metal mining sector is very cyclical. And and I think a lot of the growth in the past has been driven by China. But now if they're gonna slow but, but you have to remember Kevin like it is like a autocratic society, right? So you know, they said that they're not going to rescue Evergrande, but the government has been injecting liquidity into the system and they want to make housing more affordable for the general population. And so and, and property real estate is such a large component of China, China's GDP, it's almost 30%, based on some of the reports I've read, that it's really an important sector for China. So I don't think the government will let the sector, um, you know, collapse. Like they'll do little things where Whatever, local state governments have to step in, you know, they put more liquidity in the system, and it, I think they'll manage it internally and they're going to decide what the economy is going to grow out. We saw that 4.9% number being printed, and then you had the government officials say, you know, we're not concerned, we think we're still going to meet that 6%, you know, GB growth, GB growth target, so it's hard to say what the actual real number is, but yeah, I mean, China's a large population and it's been a growth sector for a lot of different industries, but I do agree that the uh, the mining sector that the base metal demand may, may get dampened because of what's going on over there.
0: Okay. And we, we could dovetail that into um, China's impact on the energy sector, but the energy sector has such different dynamics right now in terms of the uh, lack of supply because of really the vilification of the industry for so many years uh under investment and yeah. and uh and here we are and then so interestingly as well um you know more commentary in the media uh amongst um uh you know investors saying that you know yeah if if the wind isn't working right in europe you you got a problem yeah um, and, and we're seeing, we're really, really yeah. seeing that. And now we're entering or could be entering into a very cold winter. That's the the view these days, but regardless of the seasonality, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real lack of supply and therefore, you know, regardless almost of what happens in China in terms of their growth path, um, we could be in a bit of predicament where, you know, the demand, the supply is crossing right now. And we are seeing 80, you know, much higher, uh, priced oil 80, with an eight handle on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, I actually don't think it's a supply issue if OPEC decides to produce more because they've been very um, disciplined in raising production. I mean, I think they can if they wanted to. For some reason, they decided to, to kind of really slowly put production back on stream. And in terms of what's happening over the UK, that's really a, kind of a unique situation. They transition I, you're right, that to renewables at a faster pace than, next, than they maybe should have. And there's re- this reliance on Russian imported gas and Russian, you know, for, for various political reasons, you know, can kind of dictate how much they want to export. So um, yeah, it, it's, I think it's a temporary uh, dynamic that you might see elevated prices for a while. But I think I've also read that the UK decided that they don't want to be held hostage to imported natural gas. So it's actually going to quicken their transition to renewables even more. So maybe it just has to be better technology developed for storage, you know, for, for these renewables. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to go take a step back. Like personally, um, the, you're right. The energy patch companies, you know, they're thinking longer term and they're not spending quite as much money to develop new fields because they, the long-term trend is probably going down. And so um to me, it's it's the I think the rate of change in terms of price appreciation in oil, in, in crude oil is probably behind us. We're mm-hmm. not going to. I'm i not a believer that we're going to get to 100, you know, like three handle on crude. Um, you know, there can be production that's brought on stream, but you know, it just hasn't been done yet. So uh, I'm a big proponent that longer term it, it is still going to going to renewables. We're not taking a step back to, to carbon fuels. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Um, and, you know, with respect to your investment style um, and recognizing that, you know, energy is cyclical, um, do you guys even invest in it? Like, do you buy a big bellwether like an Exxon or or no? Uh,
1: we have not invested in an energy producer, I would say, since like, I don't know, last four or five years. Uh, we have decided to have our energy exposure through the pipeline stocks. Uh, because of their dividend yield. Uh, Mm. Their yields are around 6%. So you have that uh, defensive uh, yield support if the commodity goes the wrong way. And in fact, sometimes the yield goes up. And I think pipelines, you know, they're largely insulated at least for the next near or medium term to changes in the commodity price, but they get kind of slothed in that bucket because they're part of the energy complex. So we've stayed out of the producers. So yeah, we missed the upswings and the downswings. And, you know, energy is in our kind of, what we consider a growth equity because it's definitely not an income equity other than the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's very cyclical growth, as you mentioned, and our preference is always to buy in the the growth bucket a a company in a secular growth industry. So uh, yeah, we've shied away from that uh, that sector except for the pipeline stock.
0: Got it. Um, yeah, and investors have to realize, you know, it's it's great when you see, you know, energy rise the way it's been been moving, um, but you know, as we know, it can decline and, and stay down for for a very long time as well. I mean, you really have to kind of, yeah. uh, I think, you know, be an expert in the area to to invest in it to to a large degree, you know, and, and make yeah, that and a you sense. have and
1: you have to trade it. You-
0: yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember when I was covering one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, the guy who ran the energy book said to me, "He goes, Catherine, it's simple." He said, "You know, if, if the price of WTI is going up, the stocks are going up. If it's going down, they're going down." I mean, yeah, you know, that's a simplification, but but it's not too far <laughs> off the mark. So I've never forgotten it. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, and 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 also, you know, employ that in my own investing. But um, but so okay so we've covered kind of the macro the growth picture. Uh, it's interesting yeah. then, Christine, if if in fact the variants have del- and the um, you know the vaccination rates have delayed almost the you know getting back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, to me, I I really mm-hmm. am kind of thinking of the world as um, an elongated reopening trade. So that we're not gonna be going back into recession. We won't go into recession. We maybe have a nice Mm -hmm. long runway for a business cycle, but you know, then there are those who will say, no, no, we're gonna go back into recession, there's too much debt, um, etc. etc. Where where do you stand?
1: I think I'm in more of your camp that it's a prolonged uh recovery cycle. We're still very early in the recovery, I think. And um in terms of the debt issue, yeah, I think that's that will actually keep growth at somewhat a um, moderate pace, which actually is not that bad. Like kind of slower growth, but a longer period of growth. And hopefully, once these bottlenecks get resolved I mean, things kind of go back to where they were, you know, pre-pandemic. And you know, and we talk about interest rates. Everyone's talking about interest rates, higher interest rates. But you know, you take a step back, they're at very historically low levels. Like even the ten-year U.S. Treasury bond. it it spiked up to 1.73% in March earlier this year when inflation started to kind of rear its ugly head. And now today it's 1.6, 1.6, so it's still below where it was in March. And so, you know, that's a very, it's a very low interest rate all around the world. So yes, the Fed, also central banks will eventually start to increase interest rates. Um, they're tapering, the Fed hasn't even started yet. But at this point, you know, interest rate increases are probably not going to happen at, at least until next year. And I think it'll be very gradual. I think the, the government realized, you know, this self-induced recession was not, you know, it was, it was self-induced because of a health crisis. And they've put so much money into the system to make sure everyone comes out of it whole that they're going to be careful to make sure it stays on track. We know the, uh, the Canadian benefits, a lot of those subsidy programs expire, I think it's next week. Um, and I think, you know, maybe they, I don't know if they need to extend it fully. I think they, maybe it should be targeted to certain industries that are still hurting, like the tourism and hospitality. But um, yeah, I think it's gonna be longer and it's not, um, you know, I was listening to j js just to their investor, they had the report this morning and they talked about the medical device part, uh, area. Which, you know, they've been, elective surgeries, as you know, during COVID were delayed and in some cases canceled. There's a huge backlog. And they were seeing improvement through the, the beginning of this part of the year. And then it kind of plateaued because of uh, the Delta variant and hospitals got, you know, filled so, up with COVID patients again. But then now they're seeing it stabilize and starting to improve again. And the commentary was that it is a recovery. They don't anticipate a step back to like to declining elective surgeries. So I think that's kind of you can kind of use that analogy for the whole economy. We're slowly getting better. And as we talked about emerging markets, as their vaccination rates go up from like, you know, some same cases like in the teens to like 60 or 70%, it's only going to get better in terms of opening up business and for consumers to spend, you know, spend. So I think you just take steps to to a better environment
0: from mm-hmm. here. Um, having spoken about J&J um, and their results, let, let's talk about some of the stocks that you like for your clients right sure. now. Um, and Disney, they just reported as well, and then it got a downgrade from an analyst concerned yeah. about their streaming. Yeah. So what's the latest with Disney.
1: Yeah. um, I I don't think they, they haven't reported yet, but I think um, there was a commentary that the CEO made at an investor conference about a month ago that, you know, they have these streaming targets, like it's 230 to 260 million subs by fiscal 2024. And he kind of made the, they're about 116 right now based on their last quarter. He made a comment that it's going to be a, it's not going to be a smooth path to that. Like you're going to have, you know, some quarters you do better. And people kind of thought, Oh, maybe he's, pre-announcing that they're not going to meet whatever consensus number is out there but you're right they got the downgrade yesterday from an analyst that maybe their streaming um additions the superior superior sub- additions maybe slower than anticipated to me that's you know I don't really care whether it's quarter to quarter like it's growing and like what other company can start a streaming service in the middle of a pandemic and garner 100 million subs within a year like because they have content so to me um, the streaming side, they kind of address the whole linear, you know, watching stuff on TV and going to the theaters, they're going to manage, which is the best way for them to distribute their films. And for a reopening play, it's really about their parks and resorts and their cruise ships, because they were shut down last year. I mean, I've, they lost like three and a half million billion because the parks aren't open. Now they're getting fully opened up. And they're also constantly doing yield management in terms of getting better productivity. So that once you go into that park, you're more efficient in your time, and you have more time to spend. Is what, what they want. So yeah, I think to these a lo- a great long-term growth story. Um, and uh, these little pullbacks that you get are great opportunities. I think to initiate positions. Hmm.
0: Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about Zoetis as well.
1: Yeah. Yes. This... So it's healthcare. Yeah. This animal health care. Yeah. Yeah. Animal healthcare industry, and this is a name that you know, we've only added in the last, um, you know, whatever six months or so. I always like that industry, and the reason being, in animal healthcare, I mean, the so this is in pet as well as livestock. Uh, one, it's like the leading player. It's almost like an oligopoly that industry's been consolidating, and it's a little different from human healthcare because the um, patent life to their drugs is much longer. You should like 25. 30 years plus. And usually, when the drugs go um, generic or off patent, you end up take, maintaining a lot of that volume. Uh, prices go down a bit because there isn't really a, a strong generic um, competition, generic industry within animal healthcare, whereas there is in human healthcare. And so, even though what, so your product shelf life is much longer, and in terms of livestock, kind of grows along with GDP, but we really like the Pet Connect companion side. Pet expenditures has been growing, kind of at five, six, seven percent annually for the last, I know, five, seven years, and we see that continuing. We know during COVID, and this was not necessarily the reason why we bought it, but we saw a lot of people buy or adopt pets, and um, and they've noted that um, you know the overhang was, you know, because this when people go back to work, are they going to give up their pets? It that trend does not seem to be playing out. And in fact, it seems like more pe- people want to bu- have, add another pet to the household. But they've also found that um, demographically, people, people, younger people are uh, having pets in their household and they tend to spend more and go to the vet more. And um, pets are living longer because they're being treated now. And as, as well, like Zoetis also has some very good uh, drugs out there, They're usually the number one or two um, physician in that in that whatever uh, health category, whether it's uh, tick, fleas or arthritic, and they're doing diagnostic tests. So we just think it's the pet industry is um, the animal health care, which is pet's part of it's attractive, it's going to grow above GDP, and Zoetis as one of the leaders is going to benefit.
0: Um. I actually just added another pet to our family two weeks ago. <laughs> <And> it's, <laughs> it's killing me. Anyway, um, she's cute. She's cute. She's a bit of a pistol. Um, but um, this is yeah. so Christine with so us right now because it, I, I, I can't believe like, I can't remember this. I was just trying to look it up. What were they spun out of? It wasn't Pfizer, was it? Pfizer. It was, yeah, it was
1: Pfizer like back in 20, almost ten years ago, they fought, they spun out of Pfizer. A lot of the large pharmaceutical companies had a pet healthcare division and over the years they have spun that out to become more focused like they just on adult uh healthcare.
0: Interesting. And is the um is the valuation attractive at these levels?
1: It's uh it's it's tr- raised at a, a relatively higher multiple because of its, I think, dominance in the industry and the more attractive attributes of the industry. But um, you know, I think it's kind of like growth at a reasonable price is how I view it. It's not a value stock necessarily, but I think that you know I like the secular growth trends of that in, of that overall industry, and I think mm-hmm. you know they're they're what the leading player there. So,
0: okay, um, we've just got a few more minutes, but I do want to get a couple more from you because it's interesting um, some of these names. In Vista Holdings, I'm not familiar with it. I don't yeah. think I am, what
1: is that? Yeah, so the, you, if this is a dental products company. They, so they supply consumables and equipment to the dental industry. And this company was also spun out of Danaher, which I'm sure you know, you know what Danaher is, the industrial conglomerate, yeah. which is now really a healthcare company. They were spun out in September of 2019. And then Danaher uh, exited their full position in December of 2019. So the company's in public for about two years. And once again, the dental industry, we think it's attractive. It's uh, growing kind of mid single digits uh, in developed markets. Um, you know, people are living longer and people want to keep their teeth longer. Unlike, you know, maybe our grandparents or great grandparents, whereas you got older, you just got your teeth pulled and you had dentures. Now the objective is to keep your teeth. Um, I've had a few implants put put in, right. And, and as well as a cosmetic applications for the liners. Uh, so, you know, so that's a nice, I think, demographic work in their favor. And then emerging markets, developing markets, dental care is very, the penetration rate is very, very low. That's like a long-term growth opportunity for the company. It's quite global. It's been around for a number of years within Danaher. And uh, about half the revenues come up, come outside of North America. And so since the spin, they have been investing more in their R&D. And when I talked about the aligners, um, they were kind of late to launch their own aligner platform. They did launch one last year called Sparks Aligner. So I think they're going to garner, they're getting good growth from that. And they're the leading player in the um, orthodontic implant uh, area in terms of their, but they haven't refreshed that product line in a number of years. And they've just recently done that. They're going to be launching that this year in the U.S. So I think with their install base, it's going to be uh, a a good cross belt onto their new platform. So those are a few catalysts. And the, you know, doesn't pay a dividend. They're reinvesting in their business, and I think the multiple, you know, it's just above. It's about 18, 19 times quartering, so it's a reasonable multiple and an attractive industry. And once again, it's kind of an all Like there's a, you know, kind of few major players, and they're they're one of them.
0: Okay. Um, and when you say liner, you mean like an Invisalign teeth straightening type yeah, of thing?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Invisalign okay. is like uh it's their product in terms of the clear aligners and this line's a competitor in that space okay
0: um and this line was-
1: trades at a much huge multiple because like Massive. aligners are experiencing uh very good growth
0: right so yeah. so now
1: uh that now has their own uh aligner platform out there
0: okay um Otis worldwide so elevators mhm Elevator and escalators
1: and you know this company uh, was part of United Technologies, and they got spun off. I guess a couple years. Uh, I think during, like, around March or April of uh, 20 of last year. And we we actually used to own United Technologies, and we kept Otis and built that position up. And we like that sector because it's once again oligopoly. Otis is the leading player, uh, very global. And the reason we like it is the service element. The aftermarket—it's about fifty percent of their revenues. The other half is original equipment, but it accounts for the aftermarket accounts for eighty percent of their profit. It's a very high margin. You, you think when a developer buys, buys with Otis elevators, you buy the equipment, but then there's this kind of ten-year service contract that comes with it. And you know, elevators and escalators are kind of like the engine of the building. It's kind of mandated when how often you have to have service, and for Otis as well. We have a large um, presence in the UK and Europe and the EU, and elevators there are quite old. They tend to have to be modernized after 20 years, so they, it's aging, it's past that uh, time period. And then finally, uh, we talked earlier about China and the uh, real estate uh, uh, fiasco that's going on right now. Otis has been pulled back. It's pulled back in the, in all the elevator stocks. Schindler and Kone are their competitors because of concerns that if property development really stalls out, um, China's kind of been a growth area, then the growth will slow there. I think for Otis, um, it's about 15 to 16% of their revenues but through they own it through joint ventures, so it's only about seven percent of their actual earnings. So I think it's very manageable, and I think the pullback uh, is a bit overdone. So it's actually a very attractive entry point, I think, to buy that huh. stock now.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah. And then, lastly, Lind. I don't which Lindy, which yeah, Lindy. So
1: it's an industrial gas
0: company. Um, they bought
1: um, originally based out of Germany. And then they yeah. bought Praxair in 2018, which is a U.S. company. And the industrial gas industry has always um, intrigued me because I kind of, anyway, so they bought Praxair. So now they're the largest global player. Uh, it trades in New York. It, their head office is actually in the U.K. But the industrial gases are used in so many applications. It's really critical in a lot of processes. And so they would say that um, about 40% of their revenues are to end markets that are very resilient. Healthcare is about 30%. So they supply oxygen to the health, uh, hospitals, like uh, chemicals for MRI machines, and so they kind of benefited through COVID because of that. But mm-hmm. elective surgeries are also going to pick up. So I don't, I don't, I don't think you know it might soften the growth, but it's going to continue. It's, uh, healthcare is actually a growth end market, and then electronics is another end market, and they're benefiting from this. Um, all these semiconductor plants are being built around the world because they supply a lot of pure gases that are required in that process. There's just being growth there. And as well, they will participate with the general pickup and industrial activity. And many of their plants, because it's so critical to the um, manufacturing process, they're actually located on site and they're under like 10, 20 year contracts. So there's a, there's a long-term nature to some of their contracts. Yes, there is a portion that's more merchant based, meaning, you know, it's only one or two years, but this company is, um, they have synergy targets. They, when they bought that they're achieving. And th- it's a really interesting company because they, even last year during the recession, they grew their earnings 12%. That's wow. maybe partly because of, of the healthcare side with the oxygen demand. But they always, um, and you know, they targeted this year that they could still grow double digits even if there was no GDP growth. We know that GDP growth generally has been much stronger than it was expected being here. So their earnings have been, they've been rising. Their earnings guidance up. And um, yeah, so I think this is like the industrial gas uh, industry, oligopoly, they have long-term relationships. Typically, once you're on site with the customer, unless you really uh, mess up, they're pretty well with you for a long, long period of time. So reopening in terms of just general pickup and industrial activity, but also involved in very attractive end markets. And finally, they're also longer term, it kind of plays into the whole renewable dream energy space because they are helping they're supplying hydrogen to help build up hydrogen infrastructure in, in countries in in Asia where they're a little ahead of like in South Korea where they're a little ahead of uh, other geographies so they're playing into that
0: space as well. Interesting I haven't looked at that name that's why I pronounced it yeah. incorrectly in a long time. <laughs> um, so it, yeah. it's, it's, an a, it's an ADR that trades on New York in addition no,
1: to it's year. No. no, it's No it's just a stock yeah Oh, what's the ticker? L-I-N. L-I-N.
0: Okay. L-I-N. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And just
1: because, I mean, it's well known in terms of, because half of it is Praxair, because Praxair was a U.S.-based company, right? Right. So, yeah, which is probably why they listed there, because for their shareholder base, that
0: would have come along with when they bought Praxair. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep those shareholders not exiting your stock, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and just speaking of healthcare, Abbott Labs, what's the interest there these days? What's that valuation looking
1: like? Uh, it's not just that. I mean, we've owned Abbott Labs for a number of years, and our client portfolio is in the healthcare space, and we like healthcare. And so it's a diversified healthcare company, um, established pharmaceuticals, is kind of what their branded generic business, and they sell most, most of these products to emerging markets. Emerging markets, about so 40% of their revenues. And then they have, um, medical devices, um, and then diagnostics and nutritionals. So, but nutritionals, you would know insure for adults and simulac for infants. So that those products, but this past, um, I mean, they've always been, I think, a very well run company posting double digit earnings growth, increasing their dividend every year. They have a yield of about 1.5%. Through COVID, this company, um, benefited because they did the testing for COVID testing, the lab based one, as well as the rapid response. And so uh, that really brought a lot of the earnings toward, because that became a whole growth area for them. And then in June, um, when they actually brought back their manufacturing, the numbers for the rapid testing, because if you don't, if you will call Catherine, when the U.S. started getting vaccinated and reopening, the health officials kind of said, well, if you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you don't have to get tested, you know, et cetera. But we know that's kind of changed in the last couple of months with the Delta variant. Now, everybody, if you're not vaccinated, you have to get vaccinated if you, if you go back to work. You know, I say you're const- we're constantly getting tested everywhere you go, I, right? Like, and so they're actually seeing back, a ramp up back in that demand. And we've heard about shortages of rapid testing kits in the U.S. Apparently in Europe, they're available everywhere. But um, Abbott will be reporting this week, so we'll get more clarity on that. But they actually brought their guidance back uh, on decreased demand for rapid testing. So I don't even, I'm not anticipating. I think it's gravy if that kind of continues for them. They're doing very well in the medical di- device division. Freestyle lead rays, maybe your product you've heard advertised on TV. It's a glucose monitoring system for diabe- diabetic people. There's no uh, pricking involved, so they're seeing good growth in some of the other um, divisions as well. And I think it's just—I feel like they, you know, they spend money on R&D. It's just a well-run healthcare company, um, diversified, trading at about 24 times ordering. So it's not—it's um, more expensive than, let's say, your uh a Pfizer or a J&J but yeah. I think um Abbott actually has less patent risk because they don't have this huge branded uh, pharmaceutical division where you always kind of have to be watching you know when your patents expire and managing that that revenue uh growth profile when your patents come off off off. off. so yeah,
0: yeah. So makes sense yeah okay interesting um and then just lastly, we, you talked about your getting energy exposure through pipelines. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's one in Canada you want to mention. You, you do talk about Algonquin. Yeah. In, uh, so Al- in, Al- Al- yeah. Yeah maybe more like okay, so Within
1: the pipeline yeah, within the pipeline space, we do um, own uh, Pemina and Enbridge, and that's purely for the yield, because the yield is like over 6%. I mean, the stock prices have done well with the recovery in commodity prices. Uh, for Algonquin um, Power and Utilities, it's a uh, it's, it's regulated utility, about two thirds, and then a third is the renewables. And the renewable side, I think, is going to grow very nicely. Uh, mm-hmm. The bulk of their revenues come from the state. It has a yield of about 4.5%. And, and one important aspect when we buy income stocks, because that's the category we put them in, we want a company that's going to grow their dividend annually. Um, and they have, they've done that. I think they have the visibility to continue doing that. And, and in, a, in, in the environment where we get to that, where interest rates are rising, rising dividends will be a buffer to rising interest rates. Because, right. as we know, you know, it's a headwind for kind of utilities or income-oriented stocks. And so I think for uh, Algonquin, they actually have um, the renewable space, they're growing, and they've actually announced a few contracts with um, Chevron and JP Morgan, where they will build the renewable power generation, whether it's through wind or solar. And these corporations will buy the power under long-term purchase agreements as part of their process to decrease the carbon footprint. So they're seeing they're doing little partnerships with commercial corporations who are trying to who are embarking on their renewable or green footprint strategy as well. Okay.
0: Um, Lots of great ideas, Christine. Mm. Amazing conversation. Thank you so much. There's a lot of great content for people. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, really appreciate it. Great to see you and we'll speak soon. Yeah.